Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Push will come to shove sooner or later as the U.S. repositions itself on trade. Ed Luce has a front row seat as President Trump does his thing on trade and everything else. He's Washington columnist and commentator for the Financial Times. The book he's written on the whole shebang is The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And it's good to see you, Ed Luce. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Jerome. Thanks for having me. You know, it's um, interesting. President Trump is going to go to Canada this weekend for the G7 summit. And um, Justin Trudeau has been giving him what for over the NAFTA negotiations. Uh, He doesn't like the whole steel tariffs and saying that Canada's a national security threat seems insulting and unacceptable to him. it, it, this is this cannot be a um, successful chant with his allies. They, they, there must be some kind of low watermark here with the G7. Yeah, the G7 has been around since the 1970s, and we've never had a situation where it's essentially turned into G6 plus one, the one being the United States. It's unique, not just rare, unique for Japan, Britain, Italy, France, Germany, Canada to be on one side. And the leader of the West, the United States, uh, on the other. And if you think of the G7, uh, it's like a sort of steering, informal steering committee for the West. Um, that's why China doesn't belong to it, uh, even though it's the second largest economy in the world. And that's why Russia was kicked out. It used to be the G8. It used to be the G8, exactly. And it went down to seven after it annexed Crimea. So Trump has pulled off something unique um, by treating allies, including Canada, as a national security threat. Is anything he does here, do you think he has a strategy with his allies? Because a lot of people are criticizing for his trade policy for alienating allies. But um, do you think he can pick off allies and kind of play them against each other and come up with a a better deal? He seems to think we're going to break Canada away from Mexico in the NAFTA negotiations and come up with better deals. And this is uh, his strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the key thing to understand with Trump's America first approach to uh, things like trade is that he doesn't see a world of allies and adversaries. He just sees a lot of countries that rip America off, and he doesn't distinguish much between them. So China, in that respect, and Canada sit in the same category. Uh, if he were to play, you know, a, 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 much, um, a much more subtle diplomatic game, I think he would be trying to pick off one from the other. I think, you know, the, Italy has a new populist government, which is, has some Trumpian sort of affinity to it. He would be picking off Italy's new prime minister, Giuseppe Conti, who will be there for his big grand debut in Quebec later this week. He would be maybe offering Britain a big US-UK free trade deal after, after Brexit's finished, after the divorce with Europe has gone through. But I don't think that's his style. I think he feels... Um, you know, that if he just uh, threatens things, um, then he will gain negotiating leverage and um, these countries will crumble. I feel sorry for people in the Financial Times and the universe (laughs) of trade who are trying to explain the trade policy of uh, the United States these days. Even Larry Summers had an item in the Financial Times the other day where he said uh, he was talking about the U.S. shooting itself in the foot. And, you know, that seems to be its negotiating posture these days. It doesn't seem to care whether it's winning or losing. It, it, It just depicts doing this and tearing up all these trade deals and things as uh, fulfilling 
as being right, and that, that's going to be winning for President Trump. How do you try to make sense of this, these things that don't really make sense? You, you said Canada and um, China are in the same boat. We have a big trade deficit with China. We have a trade surplus with Canada, and this is supposed to be something that is meaningful to the president, but it doesn't mean anything to him. No, I mean, one of the most extraordinary things last week was that ZTE, the Chinese telecoms company, which had been banned from buying American inputs for seven years, quite rightly, because it had repeatedly violated American sanctions law with North Korea, Iran, Cuba. Um, it was given a reprieve after Xi Jinping telephoned Donald Trump. Uh, Trump had China over a barrel. Those inputs are semiconductors. Uh, um, the company ZTE would have gone under, deservedly so. Um, if he had stuck to that ruling from the Commerce Department and from the American legal system. But he didn't. He caved into Xi Jinping. And then the next day, he, uh, he imposes these tariffs on Canada, an ally. There is, there, it is very hard to explain how this negotiating strategy gets America or anybody else to a better place. When does it begin to hurt? Because Donald Trump goes out in front of people every day and says that we're doing greater than ever. Our economy is going great. And the reason is because I'm doing all this stuff. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. And, you know, you talk to a lot of people around America, they're saying, oh, well, you know, he might be a, uh, he might be a, a little bit um, fast on the draw on Twitter. He might say some impolitic things. But the stock market's, you know, up there near record highs. Unemployment's now way below 4%. And... You know, they have a point. The last, uh, the last 18 months, as indeed the previous 18 months, Obama's last 18 months, have all been a pretty good straight line of improvement in the U.S. economy and higher growth. There is no connection between that and Trump's trade policy. In fact, one of the things the markets most fear could interrupt this um, pattern of growth, that we're, of higher growth we're seeing, is a trade war. That's, that's the sort of probably the threat number one to the rosy picture that... Uh, um, Trump is linking to his trade actions. It seems like the market doesn't even believe in the trade war, though, because of all the incongruities of the policy and the back and forth. The market just believes what? The market, it's very hard to sort of say what the market believes because the market isn't one person, you know, and you can't actually ask Mr. <laughs> market to tell you. But, um, you know, the, the market is... Um, I think, shows signs of concern every time there is a trade announcement. And I think a lot of people in the markets think that Trump will be reined in. He's more bark than bite. And that in practice, th this is just negotiating bluster. You know, you ask for 100, you end up with 20. Um, and that could turn out to be true. Um, but I think they might be underestimating, those who, who, who argue that interpretation of Trump might be underestimating just how deeply he believes in the America first doctrine, which is a, a mercantilist doctrine, that if you have a trade deficit with a country, that means they're ripping you off. And, you know, we're not going to get to a situation where America doesn't have a trade deficit with the world unless America raises its savings rate um, and, and reduces the gap between savings and investment. By definition, America will have a deficit unless those things are addressed and they're going the wrong direction. Savings are falling. And the investment level is being made up by foreigners. The gap is the deficit. That's as simple as that. That's what it is. I'm talking with Ed Luce. He's Washington columnist and commentator for the Financial Times. He's author of the book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about the Latinx Festival that is happening on Navy Pier here in our Global Notes segment. I, you 
you equate what is happening with the G7 summit with um, Trump's next big summit, which is with North Korea today in your column, and you say, well, he's going to have a successful North Korea summit and a lousy G7 summit. Uh, you, you think he's going to go big on North Korea? I think he's itching to go big. I think he's itching for an announcement uh, with him and Kim Jong-un where he can say, now, finally, you know, after more than 60 years, we can declare peace. Well, seven, more than 70 years, we, didn't, we can declare the end of the armistice and actual peace on the Korean Peninsula. I alone can bring that to to the world. And the photo op with Kim Jong-un, you know, will be, I think, very positive body language and quite a contrast to the photo ops we're going to be seeing in Quebec later this week. Whether that deal that he tweets out and announces is a good deal in terms of curbing, you know, the uh, nuclear program of the you know, arguably the most lethal autocrat on the planet is remains to be seen. I think the fear is that Trump is so desperate for that tweet, I've I've brought peace. Um, that he will that he will agree to uh, an inspections regime that is less than intrusive. Does it is it this something that would last? You you've been writing about how Mr. Trump is evenly poised between conciliation and rage, and he seems to go back and forth on every issue, whether it's uh, you know Iran or the trade deficit or this. Uh, th- there's just back and forth and back and forth. So if you apply that sort of mood swing that he's shown um, to North Korea, and we have a failed North Korea summit. Then we start talking again about John Bolton and his view of the world, Trump's um, national security advisor, who's a very hawkish, fairly militaristic-minded national security advisor and who likened um, the uh, – said that the desirable outcome for North Korea was the one that happened in Libya. And I remember Libya gave up its nuclear – much, much smaller nuclear capacity in 2003. And in 2011, Gaddafi – the Kim Jong-un of Libya was beaten to death by insurgents supported by the West, including the United States. So obviously that wasn't a very encouraging um, sort of inducement for Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear capacity. And I don't know of any serious analyst in Asia or indeed here who believes that Kim Jong-un is actually going to denuclearize. Do you ever think that President Trump's strategy is just this conciliation and rage, this back and forth, back and forth, is just trying to wear everybody out and get get people to uh, give in to his situation? Uh, there's a lot – there's some evidence that that's what's going on. Yeah, you can make that case. I mean, uh, you know, Trump, Trump's um, biggest supporters will say that he's a brilliant at playing head games, playing Dr. Strangelove, scaring people, that Kim Jong-un was in fact – persuaded by maximum pressure um, and his sponsors in China, Xi Jinping, was was spooked by Trump's sort of talk of um, Rocket Man being on a suicide mission and my nuclear button's bigger than yours. So that, that actually did bring us to the situation uh, that we've got today. But as you've alluded to, you know, he swings from that to uh, Kim Jong-un is an honorable man. Thank you so much for giving back these hostages you took. And uh, so there is, there, it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard for interlocutors, whether they're allies or adversaries, to guess what he's going to do next. And yeah, I think you can make a case that keeping people guessing can sometimes produce results that you, you wouldn't otherwise get. The result that he wants most is just people to agree to his 
his ideas, his, his thing, his his leadership. So here's the problem. Kim's not going to give up nuclear weapons, and China is not going to eliminate its $200 billion or more, actually, $337 billion trade surplus um, with the United States. That's not going to happen. And so, you know, at some point you have to deliver, at the end of this genius sort of mad strategy, you have to deliver the outcome you say you're aiming for. And it's it's pretty hard to imagine in any parallel universe that happening. I'm talking with Ed Luce from the Financial Times, and we're talking about uh, President Trump and his strategy. You had an interesting column in your uh, Swamp Notes section about the NFL and President Trump. And we're having another NFL moment with the Philadelphia Eagles and the, you know, did not wanting to come disinvited from the White House thing. Um, explain your take on the NFL. You are a British person. You don't get American football, uh, but you went to a game here in Chicago. I did. Um, my, my wife is, is a, an honorary Chicagoan, not born and bred, but um, said, marched me to Soldier Field and said that you've got to see an NFL game. And it happened to be the game between the Steelers, uh, 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 Steelers with a visiting team um, uh, that happened two days after Trump had begun the NFL kneeling um, rhetoric on the campaign trail. He'd made that speech in Alabama. And um, so we had, you know, the Steelers, all but one of the Steelers, um, taking the knee. Um, and the crowd you know, booing them. And I thought, well, I understand the rules of this game. This is just like a Trump rally. Um, you've got a largely white, probably demographically older, uh, mostly male crowd. And they're booing these mostly black players. And, you know, this is a pretty clear, this is a pretty clear visual depiction of the larger politics that we're living through today. So this most recent controversy uh, with the Philly Eagles, most of them not wanting to come to the White House, I think because of the stance Trump has taken on kneeling, um, is particularly ironic because they never actually have taken the knee. And as you know, there was this picture... Um, put out on various outlets like Fox News and Trump claiming that them at prayer before a game was actually them taking the knee. So uh, you have this kind of of semi-comic event at the White House yesterday where Trump's got a lot of staffers dressed up, you know, um, uh, for the the occasion there on the the South Lawn. And it's, um, it's lacking any Super Bowl victor. Uh, I have to say, I, I'm getting more interested in NFL. I do know the rules of baseball. I love basketball. <laughs> Football's harder, you know, harder to translate. It takes more effort. Yeah, I think you're getting it just fine. I noticed. That <laughs> I know. I know a hail mary when I see one. <laughs> <laughs> the Philadelphia. I noticed one of the Philadelphia Eagles uh, wide receivers yesterday. Uh, Tory Smith tweeted, for me, it's not just about politics. I told you that I was invited. Uh, if I told you that I was invited to a party by an individual I believe is sexist or has no respect for women, or I told you that this individual has said many offensive things towards minority groups, this individual also called my peers and my friends SOBs, you would understand why I wouldn't want to go to that party. Why is it diff- any different if that person has the title of President of the United States? Yeah, there's I, a lot I of reasons that. not to not I, to want to go. I get that. Um, you know, the, he's asked those who have knelt, which of course does not include Eagles players, 
um, to leave the country. If you don't like America, leave the country. So he's equating, you know, that with disrespect to the flag, to America, to being un-American. When I, sp I suppose if you're Copernic or any of the kneelers, what you're saying is we want America to live up to the promise of the flag and the Constitution. So this is a, a wedge issue that Trump is very deliberately um, driving uh, ahead again of the midterms. And again and again. Again and again and again. And I think he believes that it, it, it rallies the base, it keeps the temperature high, and that's how you get turnout, and that's how midterm elections are. If not won, then not lost. And that's, that's the big aim here. This is a referendum on Trump. It, it's um, so strange, though, to have the United States and, and the flag and all these all this patriotism and nationalism wrapped up in this issue, the, the, this this package. Yeah, it is. I suppose um, you know the, the point I was making about midterms. Normally, the party in power who, who's who's got the White House says this isn't a referendum on the president. This is like lots of local elections. These are congressional races, some Senate races. And the party that doesn't have the majority and doesn't have the White House is the one saying it is a referendum on the president. This is kind of a mirror image. Trump thinks that the more he's out there, the better or less badly Republicans will do. And quite a lot of Democrats appear to agree. I mean, if you listen to Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, what they're saying is, you know, we should, you know, have candidates to fit the area and they can be different. Some can be liberal, some can be centrist. Um, but we're not going to have impeach Trump as our campaign theme. And Trump is saying your campaign theme is impeach Trump. Um, so he's the one. It's a very different kind of election. He gets to run against them. He wants to run exactly. against them. And that's good for him. He's the, still the outsider, still the rule breaker, still... Um, the guy who's going to make change. Exactly, exactly. So it is clever politics. And, you know, to go back to where we began, the America First stuff on trade might be terrible economics. I firmly believe it is terrible economics. Um, but it's good politics. It's arguably good politics. We'll see how good. But uh, it's, it's, it's worked once before. It got him to the White House. What is the long-term damage to U.S. <laughs> reputation, do you think? Um, this depends whether Trump is reelected. I think if Trump um, is a two-term president uh, and we have eight years of Trump, then what we've seen in the last 18 months, which is American allies in Europe and in Asia and Canada indeed, hedging their bets against this not being a brief aberration, that this is a permanent sea change Trump represents in how America handles the world, then you're going to see a really dramatic change where China, I guess, is the principal beneficiary. China's, you know, a much, a, a much more um, alluring model of governance to countries in Africa, to countries in Central Asia and Latin America than it was five years ago. And the reputation of liberal democracy um, is much diminished. And that, that, you know, over time, we can sustain two, three years of this. But once you start talking eight years, 10 years, you're talking about tectonic shifts in the way the world we grew up in works to the extent it becomes increasingly hard to recognize. Ed Luce is Washington columnist and commentator for the Financial Times. His book is The Retreat of Western Liberalism, and he's in Chicago for the Chicago Council on Global Affairs event with the Financial Times, the Global Cities uh, Conference. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's going on. A great pleasure. Thanks, Jerome.
Coming up after the break, we'll hear about the beginning of bike sharing in the Netherlands. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Coming up on June 15th, the Chicago Bike to Work Challenge is going to bring together hundreds of organizations in the Chicago area, and they're going to challenge each other on who rides their bikes the most, and there will be prizes. It's a terrific time. We're going to be talking about the Bike to Work Challenge tomorrow on Worldview. I am team leader for life for the WBEZ team, which is a perennial powerhouse in the Chicago Bike to Work Challenge. We're working on a three-peat in our division, and I'll be talking with our nearest rivals on tomorrow's program. Many of my colleagues are going to be divvying to victory with WBEZ, and we're going to take a look right now and get warmed up for the bike show tomorrow about with a story about how bike sharing got started. In the mid-1960s, a Dutch engineer came up with a scheme to share bikes and cut pollution. He collected about 10 old bikes, painted them white, and left them all around Amsterdam. The BBC's Janet Ball has the story about this simple idea that's now an icon of sustainability. In 1965, the Dutch Provo movement was formed in Amsterdam. It was a playful anarchist group which used non-violent but theatrical protests to bait the police and push its anti-establishment, anti-royal, anti-consumer agenda. One of its members, 30-year-old industrial engineer Lude Schimmelpenick, was determined to find a solution to Amsterdam's rising traffic congestion and pollution levels. The 60s is still a point that things were changing. It was in the same time that things like this happened. The Provos published a magazine, and in one of their first editions, Lude announced a revolutionary idea to cut car usage, paint a collection of bikes white, leave them around the city, and let people use them for free. But at first, they didn't have a lot of bikes. I think it must be about 10 bikes. And the bikes go out in the town and the police take them away because they were against the anarchist Provo movement. They were gone very, very fast. And when you look, what was the white bike? It was only an article in a small magazine and a few bikes painted white. But the white bike had been born and had caught the public's imagination in the Netherlands and worldwide. The English rock band Tomorrow wrote a song dedicated to them and soon reporters from around the world interviewed Lude about the idea, much to his neighbours' consternation. There were people around my home say, OK, what is that to do? Every time there are television stations running on your step, sometimes from Japan, sometimes from the United States, sometimes from England. But there was a lot of interest in the things we were doing. 
there was only 10 bikes at first. And yet yes. you can Google white bikes now and you see lots of articles, lots of references. Well, you can even see John Lennon and Yoko Ono stood <laughs> by one. How, how did that yeah. happen? No, yeah, it was very easy. She were in Amsterdam in the hotel staying in their beds and somebody brought in the white bike and they make pictures of it. Yeah, they like to support the white bike. And this was during their famous bed-in protest for peace. Yes. They were holding it while they were in their honeymoon in uh, Amsterdam, is that right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but while some people considered the white bikes just a publicity stunt, Lude was determined to make bike-sharing a practical reality. Two years later, he got himself elected to the city council and proposed buying and distributing 10,000 white bikes across Amsterdam. But while the other city councillors listened politely, they weren't impressed with the idea. There was only one woman who voted also for this system. 43 people voted against my system. So 43 against two in favour. It wasn't that, a good ratio for you. <laughs> yeah, that was the case. I think it was for them too new, but there was also another question. The bike was going down. People go over to the car. And for the members of the town council, that was the future. The future was of the cars and the bike was going out. So Lou decided that if the councillors wanted cars, he'd give them cars in an electric car-sharing scheme called, you guessed it, White Car or Witcar. The Witcar die here vertrekt van het nieuwe station bij de Koopmansbeurs. It cost a lot of time to get permission from Amsterdam, but in 1974 the first station was opened by the Minister of Environment and that was the start of this system on the street. Newsreel from the 1970s shows a young lude demonstrating how to use one of the cars, which looks a little bit like a tall white golf cart. He uses a special key to unlock it and selects a destination using a rotary dial. The Vic cars are lined up and ready for use in one of the five charging stations that were built across the city. But the real leap in technology was that the whole system was computerised. You come in with your key and you also reserve the place at your destination. We had in Amsterdam a Giro system that was organised with computers and that was in 74 a very new product. A computer controleert of er op de gekozen bestemming een parkeerplaats vrij is. The Netherlands banks were not working on computers, but in Amsterdam there was a small finance system and in their computer room the Witkar computer was standing there and every trip was paid by 10 cents a minute. That's quite remarkable, really, isn't it, that we're talking about 1974. This was really state-of-the-art, wasn't it? Absolutely. But while the Witkars had proved such a scheme could work the Amsterdam project soon ran into trouble. It lacked the scale of investment needed and only five charging stations were ever built. This meant all journeys had to end at one of those five places, not very convenient for the user. After 12 years in operation, the trustees voted to shut down the system 
But Lude was now on the map as the brains behind vehicle sharing systems and people wanting to create schemes in their own cities started visiting him. Less successful projects which followed included one in Denmark where users could pay for bike hire by inserting a coin. But with no record of who had taken them, many bikes were never returned. But then, perhaps ironically, the bike share scheme got its biggest boost when it was taken up by the international advertising company JC Deco. Since 2003, the company has launched nearly 30 city bike share schemes across Europe in return for licenses entitling it to billboard revenues. It is crazy because they were not really interested in traffic. They were only interested to get places from the town where they can do their advertising. Have you got a problem with that? You introduced this idea because you thought it would make the world a better place. Yeah, it was not my call to support advertising. We were against consuming society, but to activate the bike was a good case. They do a start, a real start. 50 years after being branded crazy, Lude is enjoying the fact that millions of people now use car and bike sharing systems worldwide. Now it is more common to share things, but 50 years ago it was completely a crazy idea. Lude Schimmelpenig still believes vehicle sharing schemes are the answer to congestion and that the private car belongs outside of city centres. He's currently working on a 21st century version of Vitcar called Vitcar 2. He was speaking to me, Janet Ball, for Witness. Well, it's good to know that electric car sharing and bike sharing all have connections. I was in Indianapolis over the weekend. They have electric car sharing there, electric cars on the streets in Indianapolis. I'm sure Loot would be happy to know that if he doesn't already. Coming up after the break, we are going to take a look at a terrific festival that is actually coming to Navy Pier next weekend, the Latinx Festival. And we'll have our Global Notes section with Catalina Maria Johnson. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEC. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music, and our friend Catalina Maria Johnson is here. She's the host and producer of Beat Latino. You can follow her on Twitter at Catalina Maria J, and you would do yourself a favor because she tells you all about the good stuff going on in the music world on her social media feeds. Thanks a lot for joining us, Catalina. It's great to see you. Hey, Jerome. It's great to be back, as usual. 
Now, I can't believe that Navy Pier is the location of a terrific music festival next weekend. It sounds like a really fun festival called the Latinx Festival. What's going on? Well, like the title says, Latinx the Latin next. It's like the next thing. It's really an amazing festival, wonderfully curated, a lineup, the likes of which I would say we've almost never seen in Chicago. And it fills this void that we've had in terms of the Latinx music. We've had very traditional music. We have Mariachi Festival. We had Viva for two decades with like a wide range of pop and traditional music. We have Ruido Fest now for four years, which is heavily kind of rock and espanol, so Spanish language rock oriented. But there's this incredibly fertile area of Latin American music um, that these are artists that are very rooted in their place. You know where they come from. But they take it to the future. So they're very modern, very edgy often electronic, and Latinx is bringing us on a beautiful series of these kinds of artists. Well, the first artist we're going to feature here sounds like a really interesting person, originally from Goshen, Indiana. <laughs> and his story is amazing to, to get to where he is today in the Latinx Festival. Uh, tell us something about him. Well, this is a, a, an amazing musician who was born Mark Underwood, as you mentioned, uh, in Indiana, grew up in Indiana, was the youngest member of, I believe it's the University of Texas drumline ever at the time, um, and somehow ended up in Puerto Rico, moved there, um, stayed there, became a very well-known DJ producer in Puerto Rico, and then uh, found his way to um, a, the Yoruban religion, the Afro-Cuban Yoruban religion, became a babalao and is known as Oturamun. And his music combines all of this. And the song I chose, in fact, you'll see the moment where it goes from Afro-Cuban electronica into a song that I think we'll all recognize. Here it is. Think about it, there must be higher love Down in the heart and in the stars above Without it, life is wasted time Look inside your heart, I'll look inside of mine Things look so bad everywhere In this whole world, what's Bring me a higher love. 
That's Otura Moon, and his band is Ife, and they are performing on Saturday afternoon here at Navy Pier at the Latinx Festival. And uh, it's interesting because I haven't seen a lot of music festivals hosted here at Navy Pier. You know, there's like one-off concerts and things because we've got a few venues, but there's a bunch of venues here. And he's up on the front lawn where you look out at the ships and in the docking and in the bay. And it's a new space that they've created here in Navy Pier, and it's really nice. I think it'll be really good for a concert like this. I think it's going to be amazing. Well, this is the inaugural Latinx Festival and uh, curated by um, Navy Pier as well as Future Roots and they're a local collective of DJ producers and they've they've done a terrific job um, and I think it's going to be very exciting I think this could really change the character of Navy Pier over some time I'm sure it's going to bring people here that you know, probably don't come here that often. <laughs> yeah, and um, our, our sister station, Vocalo, is a media sponsor, Ayana Contreras, uh, one of the people who have been with Vocalo traditionally over the years, is performing, and she's with Sound Opinions now, but uh, that, that'll be terrific. It will be. It will be. And uh, there's going to be a couple of uh, debuts. If, uh, Ife and Oturo Moon have been here before, but there are artists that have never been here before, and one of them that uh, is coming up that I'd like to share is Dat Garcia, and she's from Argentina, and she's an electronic musician. What's interesting about Dat, amongst other things, is that she kind of uh, has wedged her way into this kind of boys' club of electronica, especially Latin American electronica, and she did so after... Uh, taking a workshop with Chancha Via Circuito. He's very well known in that realm. And then she had a period of a very, very prolonged, serious illness and really had nothing to do, was kind of bedridden, but create music. And out of that, her debut album is is very, very special. And here's some of Dat Garcia from Argentina, Camino Sobre Piedras. Dat Garcia will be at the Latinx Festival starting on Friday here at Navy Pier. I like that music. It's creeping up on you, isn't it? It's kind of just crawling up on you. It's got a pulse to it. Um, (laughs) This music is very, I think, very different from a lot of what's been presented at the other festivals because it's very edgy. um, It's very electronic. It's very forward-thinking, but it's very rooted. You, You pretty much get a sense of where the artists are coming from at the same time. And I love that. I love that stretch from the past to the future. There's just quite nothing quite like it. <laughs> and if people are looking for Dad Garcia's album, it's uh, Mundo Datwave. 
I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so that, 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 that's kind of like her. She has a Facebook kind of, page, so you can always uh, check it out there. That looks terrific. That's Dat Garcia. Um, who's the next person we're going to hear from? Well, not a person, but nine of them. Excellent. <laughs> it's a nine-piece ensemble from Mexico City, Sonido Gallo Negro, which means the sound of the black rooster. Now, they're, they're fascinating on a number of levels. One is that they take off on this kind of old-timey dance club, Mexico City dance club music that was cumbia and mambo and chicha, and uh, which is Peruvian cumbia. And then they kind of just amp it up, rock it out, get it to the 21st century really fast. Their album is called Savage Cumbia, Cumbia Salvaje. And the other fascinating thing, I don't know how this is going to play out in Navy Pier, we'll see, is they have a visual artist, a really extraordinary visual artist, Dr. Alderete, who's actually Argentinian, but based in Mexico. So the visuals are so cool and trippy and psychedelic, as is their music. So here's some kind of classic sounds driven by Sonido Gallo Negro into the 21st century. This is Boca Negra. That's a Boca Negra with, from the artist Sonido Gallo Negro, and uh, that's so that is a that's really got the creepy sound. That, that's the creepy. <laughs> it's got a, like a old horror movie sound or something. I, I when I hear it, uh, with kind of Latin. So you're not going to want to. I don't know. You're I, not going to want to dance to I this. Think it's, <laughs> it's cool, I don't, but I don't know. You know, it's really interesting. It's uh, it's a little. I don't know. It's a little strange, maybe that's a little bit because of the electronic edge, but. Trust me, there are going to be people twirling and dancing to this because the cumbia has been around for centuries. Um, it was uh, probably came about in uh, in countries uh, probably like Colombia where there were Ghanaian enslaved persons. It comes from cumbe, and people have been dancing to this for a long time. So even if it gets a little dark, a little dark, <laughs> people will be moving to that, I promise. Uh, we're talking about the Latinx Festival coming to Navy Pier next weekend. Starts on Friday night and runs all day on Saturday. Uh, tell us about another group. Well, this is a back to a single person, although she's usually accompanied with a couple of musicians. It's Lido Pimienta, and she's uh, based in Toronto, but she's of Afro-Colombian and indigenous Wayu um, background, and an amazing artist. A great painter, a great visual artist, but also a kind of borders on art, sound, experimental music. But she puts on a beautiful 
beautiful performance, very powerful. I'm just always like kind of entranced uh, when I watch her live. So it'll be a treat to see her here, Lido Pimienta. And this is from um, the... And this is a also an artist that won the Polaris Prize in Canada with a self-produced album. So the Polaris is a huge, a huge, huge, important music journalist prize in Canada. So here's Lido Pimienta, also coming to Latinx. es relativa a lo que quieres ver Ven. asociaciones que requieras para entender puede ser que todo lo que imaginas se tenga poco que ver mirar bien si sí, ah, la dimensión es relativa a lo que quieres ver that's Lido Pimienta at the uh, Latinx Festival that's coming to Navy Pier the next Friday and Saturday. I really like that. Yeah, I love uh, watching her. She's she's an amazing painter. She really is uh, a visual artist. And so to me, with her vocals, she kind of paints. You know, you, you get this sense of... <laughs> her album's called Color. And, the, and there's uh, La Papesa, also highly recommended. So, um, one more. Um, just in case you think you can't dance, here's. I hope you can dance to this one. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I listened to this one before and I thought, well, this is right in the wheelhouse. And talk about, this is the one that really struck me as really having the roots. It's definitely, and it's saying it, It's this is a nostalgia Cumbana remix there. Yes, this is DJ Higue. Uh, he's Havana-based, I think, originally from Santiago, from the other point of Cuba. And an artist that uh, is a DJ producer, plays the computer, but usually performs with a live Cuban percussionist. So I'm hoping that happens here. But even if it doesn't, it'll be amazing. He has a really cool sense of like the traditional Afro-Cuban beats and how to bring them to, again, to the 21st century. Latin Ext, and this is DJ Higue.
DJ Higue, the last of our cuts from the Latinx Festival. It's happening on Navy Pier uh, Friday and Saturday. Catalina Maria Johnson with us talking about the Latinx Festival. This one, I re- uh, this one really seems rooted, but super uh, updated in a way that's fresh and and long. Very engaging. That's very great. Yeah, it is. DJ Higue is a, a, a super, super producer, and he just knows how to put together again. The, this festival is all about the past and the future. I think uh, Latinx, like it says, L-A-T-I-N-X-T, so it's the next Latin thing. I think this is going to really change Navy Pierce, certainly filling a gap in our city's musical heart, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, hats off to the collective that's doing it. Tell us a little more about that. Well, if you look up Future Roots, again with a Z at the end, they're a a local DJ producer collective, and they uh, participated in the curation. Some of the members are... uh, Performing. uh, Exactly. And uh, are David Chavez, who also programs for uh, our city, uh, programs part of the World Music Festival, the Millennium Park Series. So, you know, hats off to all of them for bringing this amazing uh, set of musicians. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Catalina Maria Johnson, and joining us on Global Notes, our look at international music. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. I hope so, too. (laughs) The summer is great, so there's lots to share. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to be sharing stories about bikes. We're going to talk with some of the people involved in the Bike to Work Challenge as hundreds of organizations challenge each other to see who rides bikes the most in this city. We're also going to be talking with Working Bikes and talk with a mechanic there who has helped start up a bike shop in Uganda with five women. He trained five women in Uganda to start their own bike shop. He has some wonderful tales. We'll also talk about how you can camp by bike. There's a group here that is taking people camping. You pack up on your bike. You go take a couple days, ride out to a campsite, ride up to Illinois State Beach Park with a bunch of people. And that should be fun to learn about tomorrow as we do our bike show tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Here's a little more Ife. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.